So too, now let's go deeper though. We ought to note this, that when you read the Bible, we have to separate what the Bible says. Certain passages in the Bible record things which are natural, which in no way you don't need faith to believe they happened. It's just like if I read the Nottingham newspaper and I read in today's paper that yesterday someone on a car skidded and knocked over a motorcyclist. I mean, I don't say, well, was there a miracle to prove it happened? The odds are, even if it's printed in the newspaper, it might be true. I mean, given I know newspapers. But I could easily go to the hospital, check on the reporter, check on the family of the man, and so on. So there's nothing extraordinary if I read in the Bible that so-and-so was born, so-and-so dies. What else is no? I read in the Bible that X was a coward in war, that when war came he ran away, and his own commander ran after him. Or so-and-so was impure. David committed impurity with Bathsheba. I don't need a miracle. That's the most plausible story in the world. If you ever tell me somebody was pure, I'll want a miracle to prove it. Because where did you find this man? But that the Bible records life and death, cowardice and war, purity or impurity, these are what I call natural facts. And they're not at all extraordinary. So even an atheist can agree on that. For example, any atheist, could agree that there might be a woman named Mary who gave birth to a boy named Jesus. Big deal. That takes faith. So there will, I mean, a couple of, we have four billion people alive today, so four billion mothers gave birth to a baby within 80 years or so, and a lot of them were called Mary, so why not one more? But there's a second ingredient in the Bible. The Bible is not simply a record of natural events, It's a record of God's intervention into temporal natural events. And please, God is an invisible being. God exists. We know God exists. God has no color, no weight. God is a spirit. God is an eternal being. So that if the Bible now says that this eternal, immortal, personal God intervened with Moses, with John the Baptist, above all in the person of Jesus Christ, in miracles, this is a momentous thing. And then the philosophy of the scripture scholar is all important. His philosophy is not especially important if the Bible says so-and-so slept with a woman. But if the Bible says God made manna rain from the desert, God, through Jesus, in the second person of the Blessed Trinity, made, multiplied the loaves and fishes, or cured the blind men. Well, then if a man's an atheist, or if a man's philosophy does not allow miracles, he rejects that. Again, not on the basis of scripture scholarship, but on the basis of his own rationalistic philosophy. Now also, the Bible records in the third place, predictions. That Christ predicted the fall of Jerusalem. He said, there was not a stone will be left upon a stone. Now, when that Bible was written, Jerusalem had not yet fallen. Now, I could predict the fall of Nottingham. I don't know if you people rejoice in that or not, but I might say, 20 years from now, the, the Trent River will be filled with rubble, and every building will be leveled by an atomic weapon. And then maybe 30 years from now, some survivor will come up from the cellar. He's got a bomb shelter. And, and he'll find a record. He'll play the tape. And say, gee, Mara was a prophet. Right? So 
So, so I mean, but this is it. So the Bible, and that's one prediction in Isaiah. The enti- Pascal says the greatest proof for the divinity of Christ was the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah had dozens and dozens of passages which we hear some of them during the Christmas season about who will redeem the Jews. And they're all prophecies and they were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's why the Jews wait in vain for someone besides Christ. The Messiah has come. Finally, the Bible is a record of miracles. The blind see, the deaf hear. And notice this, Christ says it's also a miracle that the poor have the gospel preached to them. That the rich are educated is not a miracle. You pay your tuition, you get your, you get your learning. But that some people in their love and in their charity will give up their home, become missionaries, preachers, evangelists, and will go to the poor who cannot reward them and will preach the gospel. Christ says that's a miracle. But never mind that you might not believe that. You might be an altruist who think it's the most natural thing in the world. But that the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the dead are raised again. Those are recorded in the Bible, the New Testament above all, but once in a while, the Old Testament. Therefore, when it comes to uh, 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 the most important thing I can say about scripture studies in the last 120 years, I've already said it, but let me summarize it up. There are certain valid works, valid scientific work has been done on texts. We cannot deny that that if you read Monsignor Knox's Bible, he was a, a beneficiary of serious biblical scholarship. He was a rather educated man who knew many languages. I don't, li- I don't think his translation is so beautiful as the Douay version. And once in a while I hear good people claim it's not so accurate. But in other places it's much clearer. And Knox is the beneficiary of many, many serious works done by people in the first class, the biblical scholars, the commissions who have given better texts and, and philological analyses and so on. So let's, let's give them that. We're not trying to go back to days when we counted on a corrupt text. It's far better. We want the truth. Secondly, we can say that the meaning of the text, so given that, one thing, But the most important thing to note is, having had better texts, the reason why we have all of these conflicting interpretations and conclusions about the divinity of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the the virgin birth, and so on, is based on false philosophies. You better believe this. We philosophers look harmless. We never get federal money for anything. We don't really blow up anything, although we, we, we started Marxism. Marx has his PhD in philosophy. And I, might or, I might warn you people in England, so does Bertrand Russell. And he's done an awful lot of damage. He's much more dangerous than the atom bomb, destroying faith and morals and common sense. So philosophy is extremely important. And you better believe this biblical exegesis, which so enchants the modern world, is based on all kinds of bad philosophy, including materialism, that there is no spiritual being, even in man, above all in God, atheism, pantheism, evolutionism, relativism. These are the dominant philosophies, have nothing to do with science, have nothing to do with philology. They're strictly philosophical positions which have to be refuted philosophically. 
Now, when you have this kind of philosophical preposition, uh, presupposition, you hear, well, most scholars hold today that the Red Sea miracle never happened. I want to tell you how they do with this. You know, in English, we have a word red. It's color. We have another word reed, which is not a color. It's like a bamboo shoot, right? But we're getting this absurdity now in America, and people in America know nothing about a second language, so they think this is deep, that what, what the Red Sea was supposed to be a pretty high water that you can't go through, but at the word of Moses, there were two walls of water. Pharaoh and his army and his chariots went through, and at the command of Moses, the water swallowed them up. And that's kind of a miracle. I'd like you to cross the channel that way. Get your wand and cross the channel. You'd save a big, uh, I mean, you could put a tunnel up in no time if you could get up Moses here with his wand, right? Well, we used to think there was the miracle of the Red Sea, but scripture studies have shown us that it really is the Reed Sea. And the Reed Sea is a little shallow swamp, and it was low tide. That, that, that's biblical scholarship. Now, try that in German or French, though. Just try that. In other words, you can get away with an English, red read, see, but is there, the German word for red is rote, but I dare say the German word for read is not root or something like that. So they're ready. It's stupid. And they didn't speak it much in the Vulgate or in Greek or in, in, in Hebrew. So they're ready. But that, this is enough to keep a parish going with its expert. The Red Sea, the Reed Sea. It's actually being taught right now in my parish. And there are plenty of examples like that. And, of course, Noah in the ark, that's absurd, and so on. Now, and the virgin birth and the resurrection. C.S. Lewis, who is one of your claims to fame that you people in the United Kingdom, you are small, your history is long. I mean, compared to us, we're giants. We're 240 million, you're about 50, 60 million. But you number Shakespeare among yours and, and Newman and I dare say, in Northern Ireland, C.S. Lewis. He never was a Roman Catholic. He was an Anglican. He's marvelous. I cannot yet find a passage in Lewis which I think dangerous to the Roman Catholic faith. There's some points I wish he were more specific on. I used to use him in my lectures and my classes when I had students. At Fordham, I would use his miracles, his abolition of men, above all, sometimes the problem of pain. His book on miracles is one of the finest books ever written in plain English about the philosophical presuppositions of biblical studies. And I urge you to read it. It's the key to so much. He, in those days, he even believed in evolution. Later on, he repudiated evolution. But even with a kind of belief in evolution, he had this crystal clarity that when people deny the virgin birth or, or anything else, or when they deny, for example, this was a typical example, scripture scholars say that the Gospel of St. John must have been written after the fall of Jerusalem. You say, why? Because in the Gospel of St. John, it's predicted that Jerusalem will fall, and since predictions are impossible, prophecies are impossible, if it's recorded that Jerusalem will fall, it's only because it did fall. And then the guy wrote in, it will fall. See? And, and, and as C.S. Lewis says, well, maybe they're right, but that's not scholarship. That's philosophy. They have taken it for granted. There cannot be prophecy. No one can really know the future. Well, maybe not. But he, they don't tell us why. 
So much then, if, to sum this up, when you hear of German rationalist destruction of biblical exegesis, it's precisely based on atheistic, skeptical, materialistic, pantheistic philosophy. In other words, if you are a naturalist, if you don't think God exists, miracles are possible, if you don't think prophecies are possible, well then, come on in, you can get your doctorate in German uh, rationalistic biblical exegesis. And of course the Bible will turn out totally different because of your philosophy. I come now to Raymond Brown. He is different, and his attack on the Bible is more oblique, and for that reason more dangerous. He apparently does believe in God. I heard him lecture at Fordham once, and I, I think I can agree that he believes in God. He's not an atheist. He's a priest, but that doesn't prove anything. You people have an Anglican bishop, John, a bishop, John Robinson, who wrote a book, Honest to God, and the, the point of the book is he doesn't believe in God. I'm your bishop. I'm shepherding you, but there is no God. At least he's honest, though. I think he's a, and he, by the way, wrote an excellent book in biblical criticism, reneging on certain Protestant stupidities. So it's very refreshing. I think that man might finally become a Catholic and a believer in God because he has a certain integrity. But let's say Brown is a priest and he believes in God. He might even believe in the divinity of Christ. They love to call Christ Jesus because when you say Christ, that's already a theological term which means the anointed and, and that's an interpretation. Whereas Jesus is the name of a, of a boy who grew up and, and, and got crucified. And as I say, I think you don't need faith to believe that. Four, probably 10 billion boys have grown up and not all have been crucified, but they've all died. So you need faith for that. Now, the key point is this. You take any article of the creed, any article the church has celebrated in her liturgy, her painting, her sculpture, her memory, her tradition, her, or, her, or the Bible, and Brown will say, oh, yes, yes, of course it's true, but it's only theological truth, not historical. That historical truth would be that Isaac Newton uh, studied at Cambridge and he did this. And historical truth would be that the German uh, Luftwaffe bombed England and this and this happened and Napoleon lived and Hitler lived. That's historical truth. But that the son of, the son of God, God the second, the second person of the Trinity, came on earth, was born of a virgin. Now, that's not historical truth. Brown, Brown doesn't deny it, but we don't know anything about it. But it's theologically true, meaning it is proposed to us for faith. And he thinks this is so much more sophisticated. It's so superior to this, to this fundamentalism where crude Protestants thump their Bible. And no matter what the Bible says, they take it literally. This is nuanced. This is the nuanced scripture study of Raymond Brown. Therefore, and he says there are two different... This is the key distinction for Raymond Brown... We have to distinguish reality, what really happened when Jesus Christ came on earth. And that's the historical thing, and that is the so-called ministry of Jesus. So he's saying, no doubt, a couple thousand years ago, an extraordinary event happened, the Incarnation. He'll, he'll go this far. 
And, and it really happened. Something really took place. There was a, really a woman named Mary. There was really someone named Herod and Joseph, uh, the, the father of Jesus and so on. That's the ministry. And then uh, that happened. And then the last three years are the most important when, when this person, Jesus, started preaching. That's so-called the ministry years. And it only lasted three years until they caught up with him and crucified him. Now, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, there are the narratives of the reality. I've just sketched what the reality would be. On the other hand, there are the accounts, the narratives of the reality, written many years later. I don't know if you people know any German philosophy, uh, but you might have heard this distinction. Immanuel Kant, who existed, by the way, and whose whole philosophy was triggered into being by your dear Scotsman up north in Edinburgh, David Hume. Hume gets the credit for unleashing this madman into philosophy, but he's a great genius, Kant. Kant used to distinguish between things as they really are, the noumenon, and things for consciousness, the phenomenon. And Kant's whole point was, things as they really are exist, but we'll never know. We only know being for consciousness. Now, in a similar way, there was the historical Jesus with everything that happened. That's how it really was. But all we know is this for consciousness. All we know of the reality is those diaries, those records, those, those, those uh, accounts. Which, and these accounts were written by enthusiastic disciples, some of them, some of them not eyewitnesses, some of them 50, 60, 80, 90, 100 years after the event. And I'd like you people, we've got a few old-timers here, I'd like some of you old-timers to write me an account of World War I. What did the Kaiser say? Who was your prime minister, Lloyd George? What was the Treaty of Versailles about? I mean, you'd be pretty lucky if you could spell one name right. I was living during World War II, and I got a few names right, but I couldn't tell you this or that. I mean, it's too far, and that's only 40 years ago, World War II. So, that's, so this is the equivalent that there really was World War II. Raymond Brown would admit that. That's the thing in itself. But what you and I know of World War II are the diaries of soldiers and the communication from the War Department, and we know how honest they are and William L. Shirer's book, and Churchill's memoirs, and so on. Well, in a similar way, 2,000 years ago, something momentous happened. We don't know. But we have the books. We have the account. We have the historical accounts. And these accounts were written many years later by apostles filled with zeal, and some of them were feverish. They were so in love with the God-man that they weren't exact. Sometimes they told little white lies or exaggerations. Because, you know, if you're really wild, if I saw the Beatles, if I'm one of these contemporary victims, and I saw the Beatles five years ago, well, I'm going to put everything into their mouth now. I'm going to make them the most wise people on earth. I'll even make them predict the strike or something like that. So, they were zealous apostles. These books were written too distant to, 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 to many different groups. And each of these books had a different point it wanted to make. Matthew wanted to convince Jews of one thing. John wanted to convince people of other things. And therefore, Brown says, 
That's all we know about the historical Jesus as it's mediated through these doubtful accounts. We know nothing about the historical Jesus. We only know being for consciousness mediated through these doctrines. Now, therefore, he says it is now obvious to us who have studied philology and textual analysis and form criticism and German this and, and Greek that, it's obvious to us that these accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, the Acts of the Apostles, Romans, Paul, and so on, they're not literally so, they're not historically so. The transfiguration, of course not. Now, he's not saying miracles are impossible, the way the Germans would. He's simply saying, well, the, Matthew wrote that Jesus was transfigured and was as white as snow. But how do we know that really happened? All we know is that Matthew wrote it. And Matthew was exalted. He was all filled with fever. He had just seen the Beatles. And you could expect that he'd exaggerate a bit. So too about Magi, shepherds, virgin birth, Gloria in Excelsis Deo. That's not exactly the language angels might have used. But we believe that in Christmas the heavens opened and there were voices singing glory to God in the highest. No, no, no. We don't know any of that. And then he cast doubt on the virgin birth and so on and so on. And you say, but Raymond Brown, why would the biblical authors do this? I mean, they, they died for their faith. You know, it's one thing for me to write fiction and get the Nobel Prize and go on television. Well, then that, that, that tells you why I wrote it. But if I start writing something and they torture me and, and kill me because I insist that what I wrote is true, that doesn't make sense. Why would I write something that will get me into so much trouble? That's a strong point in Catholic apologetic. Well, Raymond Brown says, well, they, they wrote it to edify the faithful. That they wanted to inflame the faithful with their faith, with their fervor. So they told these embellished stories. And they wanted to get across a sublime point. So the sublime point about the resurrection is not this fundamentalist thing that a corpse came to life again. That's fundamentalism. The sublime point is that we're new creatures, and so on. And you people might have heard a sermon like that this recent Easter. Sounded beautiful. Oh, the preacher was all in favor of the resurrection, but something is funny. Now, that's what's funny. He's read Raymond Brown. He's gone to a workshop. This compromise, and when you talk to Raymond Brown and company, First of all, they seem very sincere, very Christian, and so do their, their, their victims at these diocesan catechetical centers. And it even seems that this is a necessary compromise with modern unbelief. The modern world is supposed to be so skeptical, because so scientifically grounded, it's not about to buy virgin birth, resurrection, divine divinity of Jesus, and so on. So we, we don't want to be totally rationalist and deny all these things, but we want to be nuanced, sophisticated, and we will give them this very wonderful, nuanced way of saying, well, we're not saying it literally was so, historically was so, but there's a sublime point. And that's the way they do it. Now, friend, this is fatal to reveal truth and to our faith. This, this biblical posture of Raymond Brown and company is fatal. It's not. It's worse or at least as bad as German rationalism and Protestant uh, rationalism, which has destroyed the mainline Protestant churches. He's robbing the Bible of objective reality. He's substituting some other person's morality play. That's what it is. Matthew wrote a morality play. John did and so on. 
He, I just want to end up a few things and then we might have some questions. I think we're supposed to be out of here by now, but... No, no, no. no? We have a little time? Okay. Oh, good. That, first of all, there are conflicts of a minor sort in biblical text. I've mentioned one of them. You are my beloved son. This is my beloved son. I think one of them is accurate and the other is not accurate. So I, I, that, that is a difficulty. But if you and I heard a radio program in which it was said that the Shah of Iran uh, was very angry with the prime minister, right, and said to the prime minister, she's a coward, right? Now, we would come away and say, well, there was a real conflict between the Shah and the prime minister, and, and the message was Thatcher is a coward. Now, we might not be sure whether he addressed it to Thatcher or he addressed it to the audience. And that kind of thing, it remains. Eventually, there will be ways to harmonize it or, or make it more accurate. But they're essentially minor. There's no substantive contradiction in the text. That's something to know. St. Augustine has the beautiful idea on this. Augustine was very aware of conflicts in Scripture. And whenever he came to something he couldn't solve, he said, I can't solve it, but I know there is a solution which is not against faith. That's because he was based on the analogy of faith. He was not about to undermine the Scripture because of some technicality like that. There is no basis. The second point is, there's, why is Raymond Brown so sure we don't know things as they really are? We only know things as mediated through, through, the, old, through the authors. And this is a gratuitous assumption. He never proves it. It's simply his dogma about it. Above all, and this is the point my dear von Hildebrand made in one of the deepest essays he ever wrote. It was a small booklet called Satan at Work. In Biblical Exegesis, Catechetics, Liturgy, and Ostpolitik. And this one on Biblical Exegesis only took around 15 pages. But as Hildebrand said, whenever you read alleged holy books of the Hindus, the Buddhists, the Muslims, Jehovah Witnesses, and then you read the words of Christ, the words of Christ are unique in that they contain an inner truth. They are so sublime that they are absolutely uninventable by the human person. There is no way any human, the greatest artist in the world, Shakespeare and Homer and Virgil and Dante combined, could not have put together Matthew or John. And Hildebrand says this is the clearest proof that they are of God. That God uses this mysterious thing called language to mediate heart to heart, spirit to spirit, through the medium of language, the sublime truths of our faith. You know, Dostoevsky and the Brothers Karamazov, which I recommend to everyone. I was an engineering student. I read that book and I quit engineering because I was not about to spend my entire life on boring science when I could meditate on philosophy and talk about good and evil and so on. In the Brothers Karamazov, he's got this smart aleck uh, Ivan, who's just got a university education from the French and German rationalists, but even Ivan says, when he took up the temptation of Jesus in the desert, he said, that is enough to tell me that the Gospel of St. Matthew is from God. He said, there's no human who could have invented the plot that the devil should tempt Jesus and that Jesus should answer the way he did. 
And that's exactly Van Hildebrand's point here, that the words, the deeds, the message of Jesus, what happened to him are uninventable. And just as Jesus said to, to Pilate, he says, he who is of the truth hears my voice. When people approach the word of God on their knees, when they have the security of Catholic faith, Catholic tradition, Catholic teaching authority, when they are immersed in the Old and above all the New Testament, they know it is the word of God. So let us therefore, uh, this has been a long talk, but I hope it has been profitable that we are in no way are embarrassed by the Bible. We in no way think that the Bible is for Protestants and should be locked up. But we say the Bible is the word of God. We can uh, transcend these difficulties and we give thanks to God. As St. Paul says, that hearing from us the word of God, we received it not as the word of men, but as it is indeed the word of God. It's now proposed that we uh, could have uh, an open forum, if there's any questions.